0: podcast from the NIHR Clinical Research Network. My name is Alan Gaw, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm joined today by Dr Rachel Smith, who is Programme Manager for the MRC Regulatory Support Centre. Rachel's background is in science, the NHS R&D Department, the Chief Scientist Office in Scotland, and the Research Ethics Service. Currently, her main interests are in training in regulatory and governance affairs in relation to human research. Dr Smith, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's alright. Okay. Now, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen a lot of changes around the regulation and legislation of clinical research and human research in the UK. On top of all that, there are many emerging technologies and new opportunities as well as new challenges. It would seem that now, as perhaps never before, we need a highly trained and highly aware research workforce. So can I begin by asking, do you think we are exactly where we need to be in this complex educational landscape, or are there any unmet needs that we should be addressing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- you're right. It's it's um, a lot has happened, a lot is changing, and it's pretty much constant. I, d- I don't think we are where we need to be yet uh, in terms of even actually understanding fully what uh, educational needs are. We have an incredibly diverse workforce. Um, not just in the NHS but within universities and other research organisations doing all sorts of uh, interesting research. Busy, busy people who are highly motivated to do the right thing but uh, don't have a lot of time, very time poor. Uh, And they are expected to, well, comply with an increasingly complex set of uh, rules and regulations. I think uh, it is difficult when you go and ask people what their educational needs are in terms of regulation and governance, it's often different, difficult to articulate it if you are not aware of the landscape. So you have to be quite aware of what's going on in order to be able to identify what it is you don't know, if you know what I mean. It's that kind of known-knowns and unknown-unknowns um, situation. So I think it is very difficult to find out what um, people's precise needs are, but we definitely uh, have. A very eager workforce who want to know, want to do the right thing. Uh, Maybe not too sure what exactly it is they do need to know. I think a lot of people come to regulatory training often with very specific questions in mind. They don't necessarily know what the legal basis or the kind of governance basis of their question might be, but they know what their question is and they they come to -to face-to-face training with a very specific, as I say, a specific issue to be answered. So, yes, I don't think we are... We, I also ought to say, actually, we're also obviously working in an era where there isn't very much money. So um, providing training is not, you know, cost-free. Face-to-face training is definitely not cost-free. Um, even developing e-learning, there's a, quite a large cost up front involved. And so I think it's time, really, to have a good look at what we need and how we're delivering it so we can be both on top of our game in terms of preempting what's coming and making sure people are able to, to do what they need to do, but also that we can do that in a cost-effective way and that's a, a massive challenge.
0: You're alluding of course to the the, the real breadth of, of, of different kinds of research that are yes. done and obviously the, the huge array of different professional groups involved and as you've said really no one size is going to fit all here is it? Um, from your experience working with researchers in the MRC, how do you think we need to tackle this? I'm, I'm thinking particularly, you, you, you alluded there to people coming along with specific questions, perhaps from their experience mm. of research. Clearly that would imply that they have all, they're already active researchers, having some experience, but a lot of research is delivered to people at the outset of their careers. Mm. When you think about the timing of delivery of research, yeah. does that matter?
1: Yes, I think it does. And you're right, because there's two different communities, if you like. There's the, the novice researcher setting out, um, who may have a lot of experience clinically or in, in, in other fields, but has not actually embarked on a research career per se. And then you have those who've been in the game for quite a long time, and the world is moving around them all the time, and they're trying to k- catch up. So I, think, I do think timing is all. It's very difficult with this... Um, uh, catching people before they start doing research, but I think being able to identify people who are early on in their research careers and being able to uh, identify what their needs might be. And again, as you say, it's not one size fits all. You know, we have, say, in the MRC researchers who deal with big data projects, for example. They they almost never see a patient, and yet they're handling massive amounts of uh, patient identifiable data, data directly from the NHS and from other um, sources, there obviously are, there is a legal framework in which they have to work, and yet, you know, learning about kind of face-to-face interactions, consent issues, stuff like this, is not relevant at all for that community, but they they have a very big need to learn about what actually happens to be a horribly complicated area of regulation, all stuff around data. So, I think we... I think it's important that as uh, we identify novice researchers setting out in a career and identify the likely kind of regulatory issues they may face in order to, even if, even if it's not to make them into experts, and I think that's another thing that maybe we've tried to do in the past, try and make researchers into regulatory experts, and I think that's a mistake. It's more about embedding little bells in the back of people's head, so that when they start to do certain things, a bell rings tells them, right, I'm about to embark on something that's regulatorily different from where I was before.
0: Have you met a regulatory expert?
1: <laughs> well, yes I have some, um, and uh, I think it's true to say that, um, yes, they're few and far between.
0: <laughs> and clearly the, the, the way that we actually deliver this training and education, there, there are a variety of different options. And, Various advances in technology have offered us new possibilities here for education and training, such as online distance learning, perhaps even social media. Um, Do you think we're making the most of these, particularly as you alluded to, the cost implications of of, uh, education?
1: I don't think we are, no, but um, we appear to have, at face value, a massive wealth of technology available. But I think there's some real challenges with implementing it. And I think it's still early days. We haven't really fully worked through how this should work. I think for regulatory training to be remotely useful, it has to be relevant. And relevance is often actually quite a personal thing. It's, uh, I found that with face-to-face training, you really have to be on the ball and able to deliver the same messages to very, very different sets of people. Each person in the room has, comes from a slightly different place, has different experiences, has a different role within the research, whatever. So tailoring the message is critical. And that's quite difficult on an e-learning platform. It's not a flexible platform. It tends to bash it out. The other thing that I think um, I've always tried to encourage in face-to-face training is learning from peers. There's a massive amount to be gained from hearing other people's experiences, learning from each other as an audience. And in fact, um, something the MRC has tried to do and continues to try to do is to um, orchestrate, if you like, mixed audiences, particularly around some sort of ethical, discussive-type issues, like, for example, how to handle health-related findings, to run training sessions, which or, or learning sessions, really, they are, around um, inter- uh, sorry, um, introducing ethics members, ethics committee members and researchers and getting mixed audiences to discuss the same topics. And there's a huge amount of learning that's possible within that. And again, I think it's quite difficult with e-learning platforms, traditional e-learning platforms, to really enable that um, group learning, which is really valuable. I'm not saying it's impossible. I don't want to sound like a downer. I'm, I'm quite a big fan of face-to-face training, I hate to say it because you can be immensely flexible. You can turn it around on literally five minutes, how you're going to deliver it. You can see how people are responding to learning. There's the classic thing, people often turn up to regular training, they're not keen to be there. You know, it's not the most gripping topic, often. Um, And so you can see how you're getting through or not with an audience, and it's a very participatory, it's a two-way thing. And again, that is very difficult in an e-learning scenario. In the classic one where it tends to be the sort of voice out, but there's not enough of the voices coming back in. Mm. And I, I feel quite strongly actually for learning to be effective that it it is a two-way street. It isn't about mm. um, being a sort of megaphone blasting it from wherever. So. Yes, sorry, I've gone on rather, but it's, um, I think there's huge technological possibilities, but I don't think we're using them fully. But I do think we need to be very imaginative how we would go about doing that. Mm-hmm.
0: Can I finish by asking you specifically about one aspect of mm. research education in relation to good clinical practice or GCP. This has become very much a, a universally accepted set of standards for the conduct of clinical research and there are a number of different training options available for those who wish to learn about it. Yeah. What, what's your take on this? I mean, Should it be a standard part for all researchers training?
1: Oh gosh, there's a question. Um, Yes, GCP has sort of been, you're right, it is sort of commonly accepted as best practice, I guess. I think there's still a massive argument out there as to what aspects of GCP, what do we mean by GCP? Um, I've always been a believer, and I know you are, Alan, and so are many others, and indeed so is the law, that um, really what people need to know about are the principles of GCP. We're not talking about guideline E6, we're not talking about... ICH, the whole bang shoot. It's the principles um, in order to ensure that data is both valid and and participants are protected, which we would all sign up to. And I think messages have in the past got very muddled, and GCP has sort of escalated into something that, in my view, it probably should never have been. Um, and on that topic, I would allude to a, a statement that's about to come out from the HRA and the MHRA together a number of organisations at the moment are in the process of signing up to the statement um, around GCP which in effect says just that. It says if you're doing drug trials you should consider the principles of GCP and that is what people should be trained in. Uh, and actually if you're doing non-drug trials there's no real need to do training, formal training in GCP principles or otherwise. I I have a slight, I suppose a uh, um, A slight hankering that I I think the principles of GCP are incredibly worthwhile for any sort of research because what the principles really are about just trying to deliver as I say good quality data which is robust and unarguable transparently collected and that you do that in a way without either harming or removing the dignity um, or or whatever of uh, research participants and those are things that I think we would all want to espouse and would all strive to work towards and so I actually do think by concentrating on the principles I think they are relevant for every sort of research but again the thing that's really difficult in terms of training is what kind of training do you give in terms of even just principle uh, complying with principles to someone who is involved in a multi-site drug trial for example compared to someone who is running a cohort study um, and following the same individuals throughout their lives from aged, I don't know, say, I'm making this up on the hoof, age 20 through, you know, right the way through aging. Though the the needs and the risks posed by those different studies are very different. And I think it's, but it's not not to say that we ignore the risk in one and not in the other. Uh, The risks are very different. And when I say risk, I'm not just talking about risk to safety. I think GCP is also about good quality data and also about the dignity of individuals. And so we're not talking about GCP only being important where you're doing something that could be slightly risky in terms of the harm of participants. I think GCP is important if your data is at risk, and that sounds an alarming thing to say, but actually taking measurements and relying on a whole team of people to take measurements in a very highly technical, highly prescribed manner can be subject to variation just because people do things slightly differently yes.
0: and, and I, that's I, I, important. And as you say, if the quality of the data is poor, it is very risky for everyone who might be affected by the results. Yes, absolutely. Yes, Can you imagine? Yeah. A
1: publication goes out saying A, B and C is the truth mm-hmm. and actually yeah. maybe not. And I, so
0: I, I would agree completely, I think GCP is very much, although we, we we talk a lot about it in very complicated ways. It's really about three very simple things. It's about ensuring people are as safe as possible, that the quality of the data is as high as possible, and that people are treated as respectfully as possible. Yes. And as you say, really that can apply, when we talk about the principles, right across the board to anybody yes. involved in research. But there is a big difference between going from that to then, as you say, talking particularly, for example, about ICHGCP. Oh, yes.
1: Yes, I mean, ICHGCP will give you a sort of recipe, if you like, which gives you the means by which you might do that. But I think in a certain context, and I'm not going to knock ICH-GCP at all. Yeah. It's very, very valuable, and in some studies entirely appropriate that it should be implemented. But I would never suggest across the board that it should be. And I, I think also GCP, I've always encouraged when I'm doing GCP training for people to really, to really think about what risks their study actually does pose, and to really concentrate effort On managing those risks and again as you were talking about it's not just risks to harm this is risk to dignity and risk to the data and if you do that you may well find there's elements of a guideline E6 which you are implementing Mm -hmm. because elements are of high enough risk that merit exactly that it does need very tight management and you know appropriate oversight there's other bits that maybe don't because the risk posed is is much smaller. And it's just, as you say, it's not rocket science, actually. In some ways, you almost feel guilty. I don't know how you feel, Alan, but doing a, sometimes GCP training, I often end up saying at the end, this wasn't really rocket science, was it? It wasn't, actually. It's a bit of time out to think about what risks were posed and how you do your research and how can we possibly make it better. And that's it.
0: Dr Smith, can I ask you, you you've mentioned that Perhaps ICHGCP is not necessarily the, the, the format that everybody should be learning within research. Do you see any potential drawbacks in, in going down that path?
1: Well, yes, I guess I can. I mean, well, first of all is the money, because actually it's quite a complex thing to, to teach and learn. But um, more than that, I actually think it, it, it tends to blind people to what they're actually doing. You end up following a recipe and forgetting to think about why are we doing this. And GCP is, yeah, it's about good quality data, protecting the health, the dignity, respecting your research participants. If you lose sight of that, then we're in a very dangerous game. So actually, yeah, I think following blankly a recipe without really thinking about it is not where we want to be at all. We'd rather have a workforce that have really thought through what the risks are, what they're trying to do, why they're trying to get there, and thought through what the solutions might be, to um issues that may pose risks to the quality of their data or to say the autonomy of their research participants and that isn't teaching ICH GCP as a kind of recipe book
0: um we've we've talked about this research landscape, we've talked a little bit about the the content that we might deliver, we've talked a little bit about the the timing when we would deliver it, we've talked a little bit about how we do it and and who should receive it. But I think what comes across very much to me is just the importance of education and training for our research workforce. And uh, I think we do have to be agile in our approach to it and and be thinking really how best to make use of the limited resources that we have. Dr. Smith, thank you very much for talking to us today.
1: No, thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Business of Discovery a podcast from the NIHR Clinical Research Network I hope you'll join us again next time